Well, hello everyone. I've been requested to ask you to move forward. <laughs> Jesus is at the back as well. <laughs> So if you've got your Bibles there, I want you to turn to two scriptures for me. And so the first one is Luke chapter 5. If you could stick your finger in there or wherever. If you're on your iPads on that, you probably can't. But I'm going to look at Luke 5 and then Luke 15. I might just... Quickly pray while you're looking it up. So we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here. We don't have to beg you to come. We don't have to try and perform for you to come, but you are always with us. You are always here. You're always in a good mood and you're excited and so passionate about us. And I just pray, Father, for our hearts to be completely open to you this morning, to what you want to do, to what you want to say, to what you want to highlight to what you want to bring uh, new to us, in a, in like an upgrade. I just feel like God wants to give us an upgrade of heart, um, expand our hearts to a whole new level of uh, just reality. And the, the kingdom isn't about talk, it isn't just merely about theory or theology, it's about reality. And I just thank you, God, that what you speak to us is meant to change us, it's meant to help us. So thank you that you're in a good mood, that you're here and that you're so excited about what you're going to do today. Amen. So let's start off here. Luke 5, and we're going to look at verse 27. I want you to try and imagine what's going on when we read this, and the next scripture as well. So verse 27, it says, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. This is also the disciple Matthew. It's Levi and Matthew, the same person. Sitting at his tax booth, he says, um, follow me, Jesus said to him, and he got up, he left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. So just imagine what's going on there. You've got this kind of dinner party going on with all these tax collectors and sinners. And, and Pharisees are there as well, and Jesus is there. So then we go over to Luke 15. It's quite a, um, we're going to read a fair chunk of this. But just get into your mind what's going on here. It says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. This is another time, right? This isn't the same instance. This is the second time. Now the tax collectors and sinners are gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered again, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. 
Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Just, uh, we'll keep reading, just to follow in the footsteps of my dad. I've got some jokes. <laughs> and they're pretty bad. You ready? Just in light of what we've just... <laughs> what do you call a sheep covered in chocolate? Hey? Did you get that? No. A candy bar. <sighs> Don't worry, they get worse. What do you call a sheep with no legs? A cloud. <laughs> no, I found these. So I'm not the only one. Now here's the last. I'll give you one more. This, is, this one's my favorite. Where do sheep go when they die? To the barbecue. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. Anyway. So if you've got this in your mind, Jesus is here at this dinner party, right? All these tax collectors, Pharisees, the religious people are angry at him. They're annoyed at him, and he starts sharing these parables. Okay, so he, he says this one about the lost sheep, which doesn't make sense because you've got this shepherd who's willing to leave 99 sheep to go after one. Seems a bit weird. Well, you might lose the 99 when you're going after the one. So he continues on, and he says, Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, it seems a bit odd because she finds this one coin and then she throws a party that she found this lost coin that probably cost more than the one coin. It's an odd sort of thing, right? So then we, he, come, he continues on and he says this parable that we all know pretty well. I'm not going to read it all, kind of paraphrase through it. But verse 11, it says, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And um, I'm not, oh. so we you know he lost everything. He'd hit rock bottom. He's hit this lowest point of his life. In verse 16, it says that he even longed to fill his stomach with what the pigs were eating. And, and then it says, and no one gave him anything. So you know he's at a pretty desperate point. And so the Bible talks about, it says that in that place, he's, he comes to his senses, he realized he was stupid, that he was reckless, and his only option basically is to go back to his father and renounce his sonship and basically beg to become a slave, to become his servant, because he knows that by doing that, he's not going to die. At least he will survive if he does this. And so we'll pick it up in verse uh, 20. It says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, 
Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Now, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Verse 28 says, The older brother became angry, and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but, the fa- but he answered the father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Notice there that he says, I've been slaving for you. He didn't have any sort of uh, perspective that he was his son. He thought himself as a slave. So, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. You understand why he'd be a little bit annoyed. And so the father says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, notice the words here, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. It's quite interesting in terms of salvation how we talk about we were once dead, but now we're alive. He uses those words specifically for that. So we have Jesus here, and just imagine, we, sometimes we can get caught in the stories of the parables, which is good. They've got awesome meaning but we can forget what Jesus was in, where he was at when he's sharing these stories. Remember, he shares these three parables, which are one in the same, but he's at a dinner party, if I can call it that, with tax collectors, a bunch of tax collectors and a bunch of sinners and a bunch of Pharisees. So you've got this... um, Well, firstly, let's just say this. Why does it make such an emphasis on tax collectors? Have you ever wondered that? The Bible often says tax collectors and sinners. Why not put the tax collectors in the same group as the sinners? Well, I don't know. From my small amounts of study, is you could probably uh, kind of deduce that the tax collectors were actually the most hated people in all of Israel. They were pretty not very liked people. And the reason is this, is because they were Jews but they were Jews that were taking money from other Jews for who? For themselves, absolutely, but also for the Romans, the Romans who were coming in to occupy the land to basically take over. So they're taking... These Jewish people are almost traitors to their own country because they're allowing Romans to come in, like uh, giving them the money to be able to expand their influence in the place. And not only that, they were skimming some off the top for themselves. So they're lining their own pocket from their own people. And so they were not very trusted people, even to the point where they weren't allowed to stand in court and testify against something that had happened because they were so untrustworthy. Not only that, none of the money that they had were they allowed to tithe to the temple. It were people that were not liked at all. And so you've got this massive group of tax collectors, a big group of them. They all kind of knew each other, I'm assuming, because they're their own isolated people group. But you've got this big tax collector thing, and Jesus goes to have dinner with them. Not only that, 
Jesus is friends with the fishermen, with the bums off the street, the drunkards, the prostitutes that are all in this place, as well as the Pharisees and the, and the teachers of the law. Imagine the diversity in this room, right? An amazing, scattered, different types of people. What kind of message do you preach in that place? What do you speak that's going to uh, grip the hearts and cut to the heart of all the people in that room? Imagine the pressure that you would be under if you were in that place. And I think about um, most churches today, I mean, we, we talk about celebrating diversity. But in reality, we're not really that different. Most people in churches are of the same class. And I've just brought an example. Because we've got this... This is just a silly example. Have you ever seen one of these? One of these things? I'm just going to open it up for you. A lot of churches today, we have a entrance door that's a bit like a cookie cutter and unless you fit the shape you don't get in the door and so it's the same as this kind of ball with all the different shapes that are cut in it and unless you fit this like the same shape as what the holes are like fine you can get in if you fit that shape if you look a certain way if you dress a certain way if you sound a certain way if you earn enough money if you've got a certain job you can get in Someone else comes along, they might be a little bit of a different shape, but as long as they've got a similar kind of profile that fits the cut, then fine, you're going to get in. But what if you're this guy? What if you're him? What if you're like a Mr. Potato Head kind of style guy? You try and get in all the, all the things, you don't fit in any hole. What's going on there? And how often... Is the church like that? How often are we like that? You, sure, you might be able to come to a service or come to some sort of gathering. We're okay with that. But unless you fit a certain mold, a certain shape, unless you look a certain way, sound a certain way, are a certain personality type, you're not, not going to come near me. What was Jesus like? All those people that were in that room, he's not like that. He does this. He opens right up and allows people in. That's what Jesus' heart is. That's what God's heart is. He allows everyone in. There's no, there's no, uh, it doesn't matter what your family background is. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you look like. He loves you, not based on even what you are or who you are. He loves you because of who he is. So imagine this room. And Jesus paints this picture of three parables that are one and the same. And his intention is to get them to grasp the idea that God is personal, that he is after their hearts, that he is all about relationship, not some rule book. And the heart of God is for all of them. And he lays it out. He addresses every single person in the room. He addresses all the broken, the helpless, the lonely, the isolated, the believers, the unbelievers, the confused, the critical, and the haters, those religious people. He addresses them all. And he's like, you know what's happening right now in this place? He says, tax collectors and sinners, you are the prodigal sons. You are the lost sheep. You are the lost coins. 
But the religious haters, critics, the Pharisees, you are like the older brother. And then he said, and then he's, and I'm like the father. I'm the good father, and I've come to love you. I've come to save you, to bring you home, and to give you new life. So he addresses every single one of them in the room. And he loves them all, even the Pharisees, even the religious people he loves. Because the parable talks about how the father went out and pleaded with the older brother. He pleaded with him, saying, come in. You don't understand. You're not a slave. You're a son. That you are with me all the time, and everything I have is also yours. So Jesus didn't go out to try and hurt Pharisees. Sometimes we can get, I know some people get in this idea that you hate people who are religious. Jesus did not hate religious people. He loved them. He just, what, the way he did things was very specific and particular to get them to realize that they are also lost, that they also needed saving, that they might be proud and arrogant and think they've got all this, but Jesus needed to raise it to the point where they knew that they also needed saving, that they couldn't keep the law that they were so uh, trying to uphold. So he loved them, all of them. So let me ask you this. Where are you seated at this table? And think about it. Where are you at in this room? Full of all different kinds of people, where are you seated? Do you get what Jesus is saying? Do you see what, he, what it is that he's trying to show you? You see, as a believer in Jesus, there are two kind of ways that uh, you can view Jesus. And the first way is that Jesus is the ultimate example for you. He's the ultimate example. He's like the best Christian. It's the high watermark, even just thinking. I used to have one of those wristbands that say WWJD. It's like, what would Jesus do? And you can get into that thinking of every situation that you're in. You feel like you want to do something horrible. You quickly look down and you're like, what would Jesus do? And you, you pretty much never do what he would do ever. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, so it's kind of useless in some ways. But it's this mentality that Jesus is the great teacher. He's a great kind of uh, example. And I need to try and live up to what Jesus would do in my life. And then if I do that, if I can do a little bit of that, then I'm going to be a better person. And so that's the first kind of way. The second way is Jesus is primarily my savior. He is primarily my hope. He is my substitute. He is my Lord. And that's the second way you can kind of think. Both these views are not bad. There's nothing wrong with either of them. But I tell you, there is a massive difference in how you live your life depending on which of these views holds the prime spot. It's good for him to be an example, but if he is an example above your Lord, above your substitute, above your saviour, then you're going to be in a constant battle of trying to impress him, trying to be better, trying to be good enough, trying to perform in order to get something from him or live up to some sort of standard to make yourself feel better, to ease guilt, to remove shame off of your life. And uh, the Pharisees primarily saw Jesus as an example. They were constantly comparing themselves against him. And we, I think we talked a little bit about this on Wednesday, um, how Jesus, uh, the Pharise- why were the Pharisees so angry at Jesus? I mean, think of you, put yourself in the Pharisees' shoes, right? So they have this guy 
who's got a pretty poorly decorated family tree, right? He doesn't come from a very good background at all. He's a son that was conceived outside of marriage, right? He's not, in their eyes, he's not a very, he's a Jew, which is good, but he's not a very good one. Right? And he comes along, basically a nobody, starts claiming that he is the son of God. Not only that, he starts claiming that he is the fulfillment of ancient prophecies. Not even that, he starts even claiming that he is God himself. So you would say this is like pretty blasphemous claims that he's making. But I want to tell you, I do not think that that's why they were really angry with him. Because I guarantee that just like today, that there were many kind of lunatics around there who were making the same claims. I bet you there was people around going, I'm also God. I'm the son of God. I'm, I'm Elijah reincarnated. I'm here to save people. I bet you there were people around that were doing that that were not getting as much hatred and anger. So what was the difference? Well, here's one thing. Why did so many people follow Jesus? There were so many thousands upon thousands of people believed in Jesus, started following him, and started loving him and respecting him more than the Pharisees. And Jesus comes along, and he starts making claims and starts saying some stuff that he is... Uh, He's loving uh, the poor, loving the sick, loving the broken, loving all these, all these sinners and coming to save them. But he doesn't just say it. He backs it up by healing them, by caring for them, by doing mir like miracles, by eating with them in this room, befriending these people, caring for them, encouraging them, lifting them up, where the Pharisees said that they would do this, but they didn't do it in action. And so the Pharisees hated him for it because... They, they saw him as an example of someone that they needed to compare themselves to, and they fell short every single time against him. So they hated him for it because the people loved Jesus. They were loving what he was doing and were beginning to dislike the Pharisees, and the Pharisees hated it. They wanted the people to love them. They wanted the people to go, we're the awesome, we're the ones who are holy, we're the ones who are godly, when actually they were beginning to see they're not godly, they're corrupt. So they hated him. And the sinners loved Jesus. Let me just quickly say this. Um, we, want to all, we, we all want to be more like Jesus, don't we? Of course we do. We want him to be a, he is a good example. There's nothing wrong with that at all. It's just how we get there is the issue. He says that whoever believes in me will do the things that I've been doing. But here's the thing. He doesn't say, whoever tries to be like me will do the things that I've been doing. All right? He doesn't even say, whoever believes in what I've been doing will do the things that, I've, that I'll do. All right? He says, whoever believes in me. And this is a lot what we've been talking about lately, how we're talking about faith and how it's not your faith. It's not you trying to put faith in your own faith in order to do miracles or trying to be a good person. It's about knowing that Jesus lives inside of you, that Christ in you is the hope of glory, that it's his faith in you that is what's going to spread and it's what people want. Ultimately, people don't necessarily want you. They want Jesus. Jesus is the answer, not you. So it's good for him to be an example, but primarily he's your saviour. 
He's your substitute. He is your Lord. And so here's the major point that I wanted to make today. And I believe this one thing will truly change your life forever. Because I know it has changed mine. And it's one simple, very simple revelation, which I believe is the main emphasis that Jesus drives home when he's talking about these three parables into this situation, into these diverse group of people. And so he says this, he says, basically the theme is you've got this lost sheep, lost coin, and lost son. So your life isn't about trying to pursue God, but actually the truth is God is pursuing you. And it's a complete shift around because most of the Christian life, other religions, is all about you trying to chase God. It's about you doing something, about you going out of your way, spending all your time on all your efforts, all your prayer, all your Bible, like Bible preparations and fasting, whatever it is, in order to get to God. When the truth is, he is coming to you. We know in Romans 5, verse 8, we know pretty well, it says, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when we had our backs turned to God, while we were rejecting him, while we were doing evil stuff, while we were embracing sin and embracing the devil in our mess, that's when God decides, I'm going to come after you. It wasn't when we got cleaned up. It wasn't when we were good enough. It was right when we were at our worst. That's when Jesus decides to come and chase after us. It's a big deal. It's a massive deal. See, it doesn't matter to God. He will never give up on us. He will do anything and everything just to have you. He will leave the 99 to come after you. He will climb every mountain. He will fight off predators. He will push through the mud, the mess, the cold, the dark, the pain, the hurt, the loss, only to be able to win you and bring you back home. So God, it's funny, God likens us to sheep. And I just said those jokes before. But the sheep is the most common animal in the Bible. I think it's mentioned over 500 times. And hundreds of times it likens us to sheep, which is a bit odd. But one of the reasons, I think, is that uh, like sheep, we are prone to wander. We're prone to go off, get distracted. Um, basically, sheep, they eat their grass. Once that's gone, they move. Eat more sheep, move. Eat, she- eat sheep, eat grass, move. Maybe some of them eat sheep, I'm not sure. But they're basically just eating, consuming, then they move on, consume, move on, consume, move on, and just keep going, and that's their kind of life. And they're, because they're so fixated on eating that grass, it can lead them into problems. They can get led into the dark valleys, get stuck in the thorns, go face-to-face with some predator, and uh, they need help. They need saving. And we're just the same. We can find ourselves falling down some sort of cliff, some sort of valley, some sort of uh, just face-to-face with something that we just is overwhelming. And it's because we have this tendency to wander. It's, in, it's almost like it's in our nature to be distracted. And it's why Jesus is called the Good Shepherd. We're, we've, we've been designed in a way to need a shepherd, to be in a place where we need to rely on God. He wants that for, from us. 
there's like often heaps of people say all the time that there's like a God-shaped hole in our heart, and it's very true. We all need love. We all need acceptance. We need to be able to have that sense of, of wholeness and well-being within ourselves, and we can't get that from anything except for God. He designed us that way. It's the way we've been wired. It's the way that we've been designed. And so we have this good shepherd that it's like we don't necessarily have to try and find him. He's after us. He wants to come and fill that gap. He is the good shepherd. His love is unstoppable and is constantly in pursuit of your heart. And awesome thing is once he has you, once he declares that my son and daughter is no longer dead as the life was lost and now is found, he has the biggest celebration ever, which is so good. You think about the lady I said before, how she loses the one coin but then has a party to celebrate that probably costs more than the one coin. It's just an odd way of thinking. Or like the, the 99, he leaves, he leaves 99 in the open country, that uh, open to be able to get taken, slaughtered, whatever, to go after the one. Again, it just doesn't seem to make sense. And the prodigal son, we know the father, he gives his inheritance to his son and he squanders it on sinful living, on prostitutes, the Bible says. Why then, when he comes back, would you go and go, okay, now I'm going to give you a new inheritance? That doesn't seem like a good thing to do. Like, would you do that? Give, you, give someone like a million dollars, they go off and squander it on bad stuff and they come back and they're like, here's another million. You wouldn't think that that's something that you would do. And now it's not necessarily saying that God is stupid because you can kind of, you could almost think that way that why the heck would God do something like that? Am I still on? Hello. Wow. You see that? Increased in anointing. Um, but no, God, that's not what it's saying. God is not dumb. He wouldn't abandon um, a large group of people for the sake of one, right? He doesn't abandon you because someone over there needs saving. He doesn't, that's not what it's saying at all, right? That's the wrong kind of conclusion to make. The emphasis is on the truth that God's love will never give up, that he goes after every single person. That's what the emphasis is is that he's willing to risk all of himself in order to chase after you. He was willing to risk his one and only son to go after every single person. It's not based on any sort of uh, sense of performance. It's not based on who you are. It's completely based on who he is. And so Jesus didn't... He only had to die once, but the thing is he would die over and over and over and over again just for you. That's what his love is like. It's just reckless in the sense that we were singing before. It's just all or nothing. He's all about you. He's so passionate about you. He's constantly in pursuit of you every single day, every single moment of your life. He's always after you, looking for just the tiniest little creek in your life where he can just rush in with his love, rush in with blessing, rush in with favor, rush in with acceptance. Rushing with his goodness, his grace, his glory, with more of his presence, with more and more fulfillment for you. There is no end to how good he is for you. So know that he is in pursuit of you. And our primary job, I'm just going to finish off with this, is as Christians is not to try and pursue unbelievers. 
It's not to try and hunt them down. It's not to try and make them uh, found for us, right? That's the job of the good shepherd. Our job is to let people know that Jesus is in pursuit of them. He wants them. We can't try and convert them. It's not our job to try and convince people about God. God is more than capable about convincing people how good he is. Our job is to introduce people to Jesus, the one who can actually change their life. So we know Jesus, he cares for them, he's crazy in love with them, willing, as I said, willing to climb any mountain, turn the house upside down, sprint as fast as he can towards them, even though that they're far way off and wasted everything that he has given to them. Jesus is so passionate about them, it doesn't matter how good or bad you are, he will risk everything, he will give his only one, one and only son just to have you. And when he gets you, he's going to throw the biggest party ever. He will rejoice louder than everyone else in the room. He will be the most extravagant, give you the absolute best, and welcome you to sit right next to him on his throne, not just for a moment, but for all eternity. So our Christian life is not about trying to love God. It's about learning how to become his beloved. It's about allowing him to bless you, to accept you, to lift you up, and to be your shepherd, allowing him to pursue you and celebrate you. Amen. Um, do you want to do anything? Or I can pray. So a couple of things I just felt, um, just in light of this, is uh, I know that pretty much every single person here is saved. Right? Every single one of us has given our hearts to Jesus. Well, I feel that way anyway. Um, so... But there's areas in our heart, areas in our soul somewhat that can get lost, that can go wandering, and even to the point where we feel like we've written it off and given up. And I felt that Jesus wants to let you know that he's in pursuit of those things, that there is a... I can't remember off the top of my head where the scripture is, but I think it's in Philippians. He talks about how... God is faithful to complete every good work that he has begun in you. So there's certain things in our heart that he has put stuff in there, little seeds that are in there. So I turn it off. No, it's on. Hello. Sorry. Is it on? I'll just talk louder. But there's certain parts in your, in your life that he is wanting to pursue, he's wanting to bring to fruition, he's wanting to bring to completion. So, I mean, I know it's true for me, I'm sure that it's true for you. So I just felt to maybe just pray for that. Um, I had some words, but the people aren't here, so that's all right. All right, I'll pray for that quickly. So we thank you, Jesus, again, that, that it's not about trying to love you, that the truth is that you love us so much, that you expand in just every single area of our life with your love and with your goodness. And I just pray, Father, that the things in our hearts that have gone lost, that have wandered off, things that we've forgotten about, things that we've even written off, I just thank you, God, that you are faithful and you are awesomely pursuing those things and you are wanting to bless us and you are wanting to fulfill those things. So I thank you again, Jesus, for how faithful you are 
with every single one of our hearts. And I just pray that each of us would just surrender our hearts completely over to you, surrender um, certain thoughts of how we think things should look, how things should line up, how things should go in our life, even certain plans that we have, that we would give it over completely to you and say, God, you have your way. You are, you are better uh, even on your worst day than what I could ever be on my best day. So I just thank you, Jesus, for each and every single one of us that, Father, you just open up our hearts even more to you, to your love, and to what you are wanting to do in us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your presence. Thank you that you never leave us, you never forsake us, that you are always with us, that you will never, ever abandon us, even in the midst of just hardship, in the, in the darkest, in the in the worst valley that we could ever be in, you are right there with us. Even if we don't feel it, you are right there. And I thank you, Jesus, that you will never, ever again just abandon us. In Jesus' name, amen.